0: What's up, guys? It's me, Heather, back with another episode of my novel Strike Vote, which I am podcasting as a free audio book on Substack. Uh, Today is January 31st already. We are one month down out of 2022. Unbelievable. And uh, so is what's happening in my country. Um, With all honesty, what I see happening is that Canadians are rejecting the fear and despair and instead they are embracing the joy energy and the light energy is flooding in and you can feel it. It's palpable. There are, for some reason, some who want to cling to the despair energy and the fear energy and they are definitely kicking and screaming and flailing to hang on to that. But it doesn't matter because the light energy coming in is like a wave that will sweep them up eventually. So I just want to say to everyone who is already on board with embracing the joy, standing for freedom, I'm so proud of you. And I'm so proud to be a Canadian right now. And this is just the best, most incredible time to be a Canadian writer, <laughs> podcasting a Canadian novel called Strike Vote, a novel about freedom amongst this context. So um, I can't really actually believe that um, I am and the relevance in my mind and the parallels of some of the stuff that is in my novel, which I wrote uh, well before the pandemic started, and the fact that it's all coming to the surface now as I'm reading out this audiobook on my podcast is just, uh, it's, it's an incredible feeling and I'm going with it. And so um, with that, I will get started on today's episode. Uh, chapter 15 is a very long episode, so I will be breaking it into two parts. So here comes part one of chapter 15, Cochrane. With the hot sun beating down on his head, Lawrence Fallon waited on the top of his plant for the helicopter that would come and take him away. Jesus Christ, Carlos, he said irritably, wiping his streaming eyes.
1: Where in the fuck
0: is my chopper? Years of cocaine use had made the inside of his nose sensitive and his eyes prone to watering and the acrid smell of baking asphalt rising from the rooftop had it stinging. He dragged his shirt sleeve across his upper lip to wipe away the drip of snot and checked his watch. It had been half an hour since he'd made the call. The helicopter should be here soon, and he'd be able to put this whole shitty day behind him. I'd kill for a drink right now, he thought. He leaned his head back against the railing and squinted up at the sun, suppressing a smile as a nervous thrill rippled through him. He was going to get away. Any moment now, the chopper would be here to take him to safety, and he'd make damn sure he went somewhere that even Eric fucking Cochran couldn't find him. He heard the sound of chopper blades approaching in the distance and let out a bray of laughter. Finally! Rising, he shielded his eyes with the flat of one hand, but the approaching helicopter wasn't there for him. It landed in a wheat field by the overpass. Squinting, Fallon could just make out the CBC insignia on the side. As he watched, the machine lifted off and hovered around the overpass. Fallon shook his head and sat back down. He stared out through the heat waves that shimmered over the rooftop, watching and waiting, and finally he made out the sound of another helicopter approaching. He squinted under his hand until he saw it coming in from about a mile away and heading in his direction. He gathered up his things and stood off to the side of the helipad. He held onto the railing as the wind from the rotor blades buffeted him and the heli came in, shielding his eyes with his free hand to protect them. With a cacophony of noise and a bombardment of wind, the machine landed beside him on the rooftop, kicking up grit from the asphalt. When the fury of the helicopter's landing had settled, he ducked his head and crouched ran to the passenger door, which opened to admit him. He climbed up, eyes down, concentrating on his footing, and started barking orders as he closed the door behind him. But when he got in the seat and looked up, it wasn't his assistant, Carlos, that he saw. It was Eric Cochran, with Cynthia Jennings beside him, which meant that the person beside Fallon... He shifted his glance to the side to confirm this. was Gilles Duset? Fallon gaped at them. His eyes did an almost cartoon bulge, and then he started backpedaling, trying to get back out of the machine, but it had lifted off. He looked behind himself, out the window, and saw the roof of his plant receding. The edge of the building dropped away. There were a hundred feet above the ground and climbing and he realized with a sickening sensation that he was as good as dead. An hour earlier, Cochran had been lying naked in the bed in his private quarters at the flag building, watching Cynthia's exquisite backside as she rose and walked into the ensuite bathroom. He'd listened long enough to hear the shower start up, then he'd rolled onto his back and felt the stirrings of another erection. Sex with Cynthia had been incredible, Lying in his bed alone, he recalled the delicious sensation of plunging into her, the slippery flesh that had yielded so willingly to allow him in. His mind filled with the image of her riding him, head back, breast bouncing, and he reached down and grabbed a hold of his erection. He gave it a few quick strokes and jerked off. It only took a moment, and as he wiped himself with a handful of the finest Italian sheets that money could buy, He reached with his other hand for the remote. As the TV snapped to life, he smiled. Forget the slideshow. Forget the email slip-up. This was as close to happy as Eric Cochran ever got, and he hadn't forgotten about the fact that finally, his long-awaited project Resolute was on the table. Indeed, Cochran was not the kind of man to forget about a thing like that. He clicked through the channels to find the latest update on the disaster and stopped on the CBC news feed. Some sort of riot was going on at what looked like an auto factory, judging by the rows of partially completed vehicles. He peered closer. Those weren't... Were they thrusts? Was that the Fallon plant? His mood took a nosedive. The camera panned in on a glass enclosure within the plant and Cochran saw that Lawrence Fallon was inside. Motherfucker, Cochran muttered, as the last of his post glow evaporated. He stared at the screen with dull eyes, listening to what the on-site reporter had to say. We're live from the Fallon plant in Mount Bridges, where workers are staging a wildcat strike. They demand to talk to Lawrence Fallon about the controversial slideshow that's been getting so much attention today. The news footage took in the fear on the workers' faces as the building trembled through a quake. When the trembling was over, they began to pound their tools and shout out Fallon's name. Retrieving his bourbon and his cell phone, Cochran settled naked in his easy chair to watch the broadcast and saw a missed call from Fallon. That about figures, he thought. He watched some grainy footage of Lawrence Fallon showing up to give the fox his glock and put his face in his hands for a moment. But when Fallon all but admitted his involvement in Preston's death on national television, Cochran nearly choked on an ice cube from his drink. He pinched the bridge of his nose between his thumb and forefinger, his his lips a thin white line. This was not good. Eric Cochran had been around this game long enough to know that he was at a crossroads. One side led to keeping up appearances of normalcy, of doing damage control, spin, and PR to combat the bad press that Fallon had afforded him. The other road led to Resolute. He stood at the crossroads in his mind, debating, but the more he thought about it, the more he realized that the jig was up. Thanks to Fallon there, hiding the evidence of the fracking damage in any convincing manner would be difficult. Hell, it might be impossible. Time to go for broke, he thought. He turned the idea over in his mind and arrived at the only conclusion that was logical. Fallon had fucked things up. It was time to enact resolute or die trying. He took a moment to gut check his decision the compound was set up, the barrier system in place. The only thing left for Fallon to do was enact it. He stood, his shriveled penis barely visible against a tuft of white and ginger hair. Across his stomach, loose flesh hung in pendulous waddles from his waistline, the result of several failed plastic surgery procedures that he'd had over the years to try to slim down. The surgeries had been a disaster. They'd left him looking worse instead of better, and eventually he'd given up. He liked the finer things in life too much. Good steaks, fried clams, thick-cut french fries, dripping gravy, rich desserts. Before he dressed, he donned a girdle-like device, a stretchy cummerbund that went around the jowly flesh of his abdomen and snugged it into place. The hanging waddles folded neatly inside the garment which held them flat against the curve of his interior fat so that his stomach looked merely round instead of disfigured. Like the teats of a she-dog, he thought for the thousandth time as he slid his pants up over it and buttoned them. As he was putting on his shirt, he heard the shower turn off and the curtain slide aside. Not bothering to knock, he opened the bathroom door. Cynthia was bent from the waist, her backside facing him, as she wrapped a towel around her hair. He grunted at the sight. She turned towards him sinuously and stood, hands on hips, pushing her breasts in his direction, a saucy smile upon her face. Want some more? She asked coyly, looking backwards at him over her shoulder. He grunted again, curt, "Get dressed. We're going for a ride. He turned on his heel and left the room, slamming the door shut behind him. Cynthia's eyes narrowed. The saucy smirk fell from her face, her features hardening. She scowled at the closed bathroom door, but she picked up her clothes and got dressed. Cochrane crossed to the bar to refill his drink and found his bottle of scotch empty. What's his nuts there? The concierge must have neglected to provide additional bottles. Great job, genius, he muttered but he knew there were more bottles at the building's utility bar. He left the suite, making a call on his cell phone as he walked down the corridor and opened the door to the utility room. His assistant picked up. Operation Resolute is a go, Cochran said, rummaging in the cabinets of the utility bar and finding a selection of premium scotch. Initiate the procedures. We need to mobilize the buses, Get the injections out of storage and get them ready. Put enough doses on each bus, one for every seat. Deploy a crew, one team for each bus, then await my instructions. Arm them. Give them the heaviest weaponry that we have. Nobody's going to be looking too closely once this land goes down. Any questions? He chose two of his finest bottles of scotch and tucked them under his arm listening as the person on the other end reviewed his instructions. There was one question, as it turned out, and that was the question about what they would do with the children. Cochran held up a third bottle, admiring the way that the light illuminated the amber liquid. Don't worry about them. Give them the injections too. There's always a market for children. I'll be in touch. He hung up the phone and stowed it in his pocket. Turning, he took all three bottles and left the utility room. After he had gone, a small cry of distress sounded from the far corner of the room where Andrew Summers sat, concealed behind a pile of boxes, thinking about what he'd just heard. He unscrewed the cap from his bottle of rum with fingers that shook and took another drink. There were only a handful of board members still in the building, and Cochran called them together. Go, he said bluntly. Get outside the evac zone and keep a low profile. I'll be in touch. He called for his pilot, had him start up the Black Hawk. Taking Cynthia by the elbow, he led her to the helipad. The machine was flashy and powerful, the noise of its rotors deafening. Cochrane boarded first, using the pilot's shoulder for support to hoist his weight inside. Nimbly, Cynthia climbed in beside him, oversized mirror designer sunglasses shielding her eyes and what looked like the beginnings of a hand-shaped swelling in her cheek. Once inside the helicopter, speeding toward Mount Bridges, Cochrane had his secretary search up the name of Lawrence Fallon's personal assistant, a man named Carlos. Then he'd had her search up the names of Carlos's children and the address of the elementary school that they attended. It had been a simple matter after that to call the man and threaten him. Carlos had sold out Lawrence Fallon. He sang like a canary, told Cochran exactly where Fallon could be found, sitting atop the Fallon plant, waiting to be airlifted away. Once Cochran had that info, he instructed the pilot to go and pick up Gilles Doucette. Cochran had brought Doucette a machine gun. In fact, he brought him a small arsenal, and when Doucette had seen it, his gray eyes glinted. Hover outside that window, the fox grunted at the pilot through the headset. Then he opened the door on his side of the machine and started blasting. As the bricks chipped off and rained down on the pavement, there was only one thing on Doucette's mind, Lodi James's face. He knew the man was easily capable of dodging his spray of bullets from this angle. But still, there was a chance that one of them would be hit. The thought of leaving unavenged was more than the fox could take. When his clip was empty and they'd lift it off, he made a silent promise to himself that this thing with James was far from over. Before this day was through, he'd kill that man and fuck that woman that was with him, hurt her, cut her up leave her to bleed out on the floor in pain, humiliated, her life reduced to a hurting pile of abject misery. Maybe I'll make James watch, he told himself, smirking humorlessly. It had been a short hop from there to the Fallon plant. As they took off from the roof with Fallon inside, Doucette grunted in disgust as Lawrence Fallon started blubbering. He begged for his life tears of self-pity leaped down his face as he tried to convince Cochrane that what had happened hadn't been his fault. They knew about Preston, he said, and Cochrane rolled his eyes. Of course they knew about Preston, jackass. You all but told them. You couldn't have looked more guilty. They made a lucky guess is all, but you confirmed it. Fallon started to defend himself, and Cochrane shot him. He had had enough. His tolerance for listening to the blubbering of idiots had gotten very low that day. He'd reached his limit, and so he just simply picked up his weapon and parted Fallon's eyebrows for him with a neat black hole to help him stop talking. Sitting beside him, filing her exquisite nails, this time Cynthia Jennings didn't flinch. She knew that she was lucky. Fallon had taken the heat of Cochrane's rage instead of her. All she had to do was keep her body naked and available to Cochran's explorations, keep her mouth shut, and she'd be fine, or so she hoped. Cochrane leaned forward and spoke to the pilot through his headphones. Take me out over Lake Huron. We've got some garbage to dump out. Jamie Sinclair and Morty Sampson were still in the news helicopter, capturing a few last shots. The traffic had begun to flow again, slowly, around the sinkhole. The directional arrow Justin had painted on his truck guiding the vehicles in the direction of safety long after he'd left, just like you'd said. There was still a traffic backlog there, probably would be for hours, but at least the vehicles could get around the sinkhole safely and head towards Sarnia and the fastest way out of the evac zone. Morty, get a shot of that, Jamie said pointing at the cars that were now making their way westbound once again. Those are the people who make it to freedom. Jamie watched them go a little sadly and couldn't help but feel like she should be going too. Still, those workers have been really something. She had thought that the slideshow at the plant was going to be the finest coverage of her career, but the clearing of the interchange had been inspirational, maybe even better. She turned to say something to Morty, who was playing back the footage in the viewfinder beside her, when out of the corner of her eye, she saw another helicopter approaching in the distance. She elbowed Morty instead and pointed as the helicopter came down on top of the Fallon plant. They saw a man duck his head and run across the rooftop to get in. It's Fallon, Jamie said. It's gotta be. We saw him go up the catwalk. Who else? Morty nodded. As the machine took off, a jolt of intuition struck her. Follow them, a little voice whispered inside her head. The network's white Robinson 44 was already running, its rotor spinning overhead. Jamie, acting on instinct, spoke to the pilot. Do you see that Black Hawk helicopter on the roof of the plant? You bet. Black Hawk. Nice one, too. It's lifting off. Looks like it's headed out towards the lake. Jamie pressed her knuckles to her lips, hesitating. She didn't really have permission to authorize another flight to who knew where, but every instinct was screaming at her to follow Fallon. She turned to Morty, who was busy setting up his long-range camera. That thing got a scope, she asked. Sure does, he told her, patting the casing affectionately. She made up her mind. Follow that other helicopter and stay in his blind spot, okay? Okay. The pilot nodded and took off, and Jamie turned to Morty. When we catch up, I want that long-range lens trained on the Blackhawk. Got it? Sure thing, Morty replied. He looked at Jamie sideways, surreptitiously appraising her. That was a ballsy call to make for a fledgling, fledgling reporter, but that's the kind of nerve it takes to become a great one. Jamie smiled at him and sank back in her seat. This had been the craziest day of her career, and it wasn't over yet. Part of her wanted to get the hell out of the evac zone, but a much larger part wanted to grip this day's riotous events by the tail and give chase. She knew she was taking a pretty big gamble, but what the hell? A smile stole over her face. She looked out the window and saw the towns of Strathroy and Park Hill pass by in rapid succession. She could see the sparkling turquoise water of Lake Huron beyond them to the north. She felt like she was on top of the world. Up ahead, the Blackhawk passed the town of Grand Bend and headed out over the water. The pilot spoke over the headset. You guys see that smoke, he asked, nodding his head to the northeast. That's got to be the, what's it called, the crevasse across the Bruce Peninsula that the news was talking about. Jamie peered in that direction. Jesus, she said. The smoke plume stood out strikingly along the fissure. Morty panned over to get a shot of it, but Jamie placed a hand on his arm. We can head that way after. Right now, we need to keep an eye on that other machine. Uh, ma'am, I'm afraid I can't follow him any further, said the pilot, hovering over Graham Bend's iconic beach. This here is a single-engine machine, We don't have clearance to fly over the lake. Jamie blanched. I need that shot, she said. The nervous twitching in her gut told her that they had to follow Fallon. I'll pay you 500 bucks under the table. The pilot shrugged, then nodded. 500 bucks will get you a few minutes, he said, and headed out over the water. The occupants of the Black Hawk had spotted the plumes of smoke on the horizon as well. But so far, no one on board was aware that they were being followed. Doucette had Fallon's body up against the door of the machine. He waited until he figured they were out deep enough. Then he told the pilot to slow down and hover. Cochran turned a questioning frown on him, and Doucette shrugged. I want to see him hit, he said. Cochran rolled his eyes. Okay, but make it quick. We don't have all day. The pilot slowed the machine, hovering low over the surface. It was a brilliant day, the sky a crystal blue, the water glinting diamonds down below. Doucette hauled open the door and booted Fallon's body out. He watched it fall. It hit the water with a splash, sank for a moment, then bobbed back up, face down, to float on the surface. Doucette rubbed his aching jaw, probed his broken teeth, with his tongue and thought of Lodi James. A sneer curled up his ruined lips. Doucette loaded another clip into the machine gun and rained a trail of bullets down towards the floating corpse. An S-shaped line of splashes marched across the water, peppering Lawrence Fallon's back with red sunbursts before crossing off the other side. All right, that's enough, Cochran barked. He swatted Doucette with the back of his knuckles, Doucette let out a laugh, but he pulled the gun inside and closed the door. Take us over that crevasse, Cochrane told the pilot, gesturing further along the coastline to where the shore of Lake Huron arced northward toward the Bruce Peninsula. The Black Hawk dipped sideways, then took off towards the line of smoke plumes. In the white Robinson 44, a little behind them, Morty was staring through the viewfinder at the other machine. It looks like they're coming to a standstill. Something's happening. The door on the right-hand side just opened up, and holy fuck, they dropped a body out the side. Jamie gripped his arm. Don't lose it. Keep your eyes trained on that spot, okay? You got it? He nodded. I can see a flash of white where it came down, floating on the water. The pilot spoke over the headphones. Looks like they're on their way again. You want to follow them? Jamie shook her head. Can we go hover over that thing, whatever it is, that fell out of the machine? I want to get a shot of it, and then we'll follow them after, if you think it's safe. Jamie had to brace herself against the swirling inner stomach as they descended. The water was only 12 feet or so below them. She was scanning back and forth, searching for whatever it was, hoping it wasn't a body. Morty swallowed thickly beside her. It's Fallon, he said. Jamie looked at him, and he took his face from the viewfinder. Holy shit, Jamie, it's Lawrence Fallon. He's dead for sure. The back of his head's blown out. His back is full of bullet holes. I recognized him by what he was wearing at the plant. He swapped the long-range lens for a different one, and filmed a few discreet still shots of the body bobbing gently in the water. When he had the photos that he needed, the pilot turned the machine so that Jamie could see it too. Jamie had to fight to keep from retching. She could still recall the sensation of Fallon's grip on her elbow as they'd walked together through the plant. But now the red slick floating by his body made her want to gag. She closed her eyes, Recovering and told the pilot to radio their location to the authorities. Once they were on the way she turned to Morty. What should we do she asked. The pilot interrupted through the headphones. It looks like the Blackhawks heading up the coastline following highway 21. I can just make them out. They're going towards that line of smoke. He swiveled the machine to face the towering columns of soot and ash that billowed up into the blue perfection of the sky. It's safe for us to follow them that way, long as they stay above the highway. Morty and Jamie exchanged a glance. Follow them, they said in unison. As the pilot tilted the machine forward and set off in that direction, Jamie could see the long gray arm of the Bruce Peninsula stretching off ahead to the left. Inside the Blackhawk, as they flew along the coast towards the Bruce Peninsula, Cochrane looked out over the nuclear plant. The geologists had been right. It was on the lakeward side of the fissure line that was developing across the base of the Bruce Peninsula. Surveying the damage outside his window, what Cochrane saw was a green landmass, heavily forested, with a line of brown fissures standing out in sharp relief from the green of the forest the Fisher line stretched from Kincardine to Wyerton. It was not a solid line, not yet, but with the long brown sinkholes that now dotted the landmass like hyphens along its path, it was easy to see from the air what the inevitable outcome would be. The Bruce was going to break along that line and fall. They flew along the Fisher line all the way to Wyerton, to the place where Jim and Norma Olafson had bid farewell to their Buick that morning. Cochran leaned forward, telling the pilot to hover over the chasm. I'll get you as close as I can, but I've got to be careful around that smoke. Wind shifts direction. We're going to be in trouble. Cochran grunted, but the pilot had gotten them pretty close to the gash. They hovered above it, looking down on an angle. They could see the crack that had opened up in the hillside. Looking at it from the top down, Cochrane could see a vertical black shaft where the bridge had been, one that led inland for God knew how long. On both sides of that chasm, the sand and slate and dolomite rock was exposed. The color of the muddy topsoil layer stood out in sharp contrast from the green of the forested hillsides on either side of the fissure down at ground level, the gray surface of the roadway puckered up on both sides of the divide. Cochrane's gaze followed the gash down to the bottom, where at the waterline, the frothing waters of the bay lapped at it, pushing inwards. A crowd of people spanned the chasm on either side. Vehicles were scattered everywhere. A few officers from the Ontario Provincial Police stood with their backs to the expanse, trying to maintain some order. As Cochran and Doucette stared down at the crevasse, a rumbling began to sound loud enough to be heard over the Black Hawk's engines. What the hell is that, said Cochran. No one answered. The sound continued to intensify. It was another quake. The people down below began to clutch at things for balance. The ground was trembling visibly, but then Doucette slapped Cochran on the arm and pointed to the north, the road that stretched off ahead of them in that direction was Highway 6. Cochrane knew this because it was smack dab in the middle of the gray zone represented on Anderson's map in what was supposed to have been the no-frack zone. There were lots of drill sites in the area. There's some really rich shale in that region, Kincaid had told them at the meeting. We get a lot of product out of there. Cochrane shook his head, but even though he knew about the frack sites, He was in no way prepared to see what he witnessed next. Watching the surface of the pavement on the highway, he saw a crack open up just to one side of the center line. The crack widened. It snaked northward in a straight line following Highway 6 until it disappeared out of sight, and then impossibly, the crack widened even further. There was a moment when Cochran was looking at a highway with a trench that ran down the center of it, and then suddenly everything on the lakeward side of it dropped away. Before Cochran's disbelieving eyes, the land gave out. A ripple started at the point nearest to the rockfall and traveled northward along the pavement, following the crack that had started that morning at a frac site in Stokes Bay a small town almost 50 kilometers north towards the top of the peninsula. As Cochrane watched, the gap just widened and widened until everything along the lakeward side dropped off. The roadway on only one side of the center line remained intact. The rest of it was gone, sliding down towards the water, surging out into the bay. An avalanche of mud and rock and trees rained down, charging furiously into the blue expanse of water. A lot of cars and people went down with it. Barreling down the slope, the landslide charged like a liquid freight train as the peninsula parted along its north-south plain and all that was on the eastern side of Highway 6's center line fell into the water. Caught in the moving froth, Homes and buildings, still partially intact, tumbled like articles of clothing in a washing machine. Boulders rolled like marbles. Trees that were still upright hurtled lakeward, listing crazily, then crashing over. Roots revealed like clutching fingers momentarily before they too subsided. A massive wave hurtled eastward. Cochran cocked an eyebrow. How far would it go, he wondered idly. Too bad that Anderson kid wasn't here, or he would have asked him. Cochran had a limited understanding of the forces at play, but would that wave and the displacement of all this land surging into the water be enough to flood out the nuclear plant? Might want to head out soon, just in case, he thought. The scene was unlike anything that he had ever witnessed before, in real life or TV. A plume of dust arose, momentarily obscuring visibility before the pilot rocketed them upward, far enough to where the air was clear. The scope of the landslide was massive. Toward the center of the peninsula, verdant countryside stood whole, intact, and placid, but on the lakeward side, utter destruction reigned. The muddy torrent of earth and debris that had charged out into the bay swirled around in slowing eddies of flotsam. And then when the momentum of the initial force subsided, a deluge rushed back in to scurl along the Bruce's muddy new eastern bank at what had been the center line of Highway 6. The aftermath was chaos. Hawkins saw a police SUV disappear under the muddy water and tried to keep his eyes on the vehicle as it sank, but the debris washed it from view. There had been a driver in that vehicle, he knew. It had been in motion, heading north along the shoulder of Highway 6, a moment before the ground turned into chocolate pudding beneath its wheels. The pilot lifted the Black Hawk up a little and turned the nose of the machine northeastward. There were towns up there, he said, to no one in particular. Colpoys Bay was one of them. It's where I learned to fish. It was there a minute ago, but now it's gone. His voice was flat with shock, but he was right. Cochrane guessed the landslide area had to be a few hundred square kilometers at least. There had been towns up there. It looked like several of them had washed out into the water, taking their populations with them. Homes and businesses and people's bodies churning over each other like stones thrown into a rushing river. When the earthquakes finally ended, a tall brown cliff was left behind. It looked for all the world like a slab of broken chocolate standing up out of the water with a frosting of green vegetation and a strip of narrow gray pavement along the top. The freshly exposed land looked raw like the skin under a blister. Debris-strewn water roiled along the new concavity. A slice had been taken out of the hillside, one that stretched for miles. The water probed it like a kid exploring the hole where its first lost tooth had been before settling into its new basin. And in the debris that floated on the surface were the living and the dead alike. Holy Christ! Pilot shouted into the headphones, wincing. Cochrane tore off his headset and threw it against the back of the pilot's seat, but he looked to where the man was pointing. What was left of the main body of the Bruce Peninsula was on the move, shifting like a tectonic plate in motion. The chasm separating it from the mainland widened, a grinding sound like the noise of whale song rose up hauntingly from deep below. The air was charged with apprehension as the people on the mainland side waited to see how far the ponderous beast that was the Bruce would travel. It came to a stop a moment later and the slope of the land looked different somehow by the time the earthquake subsided. Stephen fucking Arthur's kid was right, Cochran thought to himself, shaking his head in disgust. The vertical chasm if you could even call it that anymore, was now a large black wedge-shaped opening, a column of darkness that pointed inland to the west, the line of fissures pointing straight toward the nuclear plant. Figures, Cochrane thought, scrubbing at his eyes with his hand. When the quake had finally ended, the cluster of people who had been frozen in fear and disbelief on the mainland side of the divide snapped into motion. The trigger was a man that bobbed to the surface, waving his arms for a moment, just long enough to call out a brief and watery cry for help before sinking back down underwater. The effect was instantaneous. There were people alive down there, and the bystanders on the land that had not been lost suddenly became the rescue squad. A scattered fleet of rental pedal boats bobbed and swayed close by, unmoored by the disaster. A woman OPP officer ran toward the severed center line of Highway 6 and vaulted off, soaring athletically through the air and executing a neat and nearly splashless dive before she popped back up above the surface and swam to one of the pedal boats. Pulling herself on board, she started pedaling. The vessel rocked with the strength of her exertion. She drew up alongside a survivor and hauled the man on board. Others followed suit, and soon the water surface was dotted with people in canoes and rowboats and whatever floating vessels they could find, sifting through the debris to try to find survivors. In the distance, the sirens on a police boat could be heard approaching. In the air where Cochrane was, the people looked small, their efforts puny, like little ants, he thought, then turned away. He told the pilot to fly along the landslide area. The damage ended just south of a place called Miller Lake, and Cochrane could see that the slide line only followed Highway 6, a short ways north, before veering off through the countryside towards Stokes Bay. The destruction was massive. Cochran regarded it emotionlessly from the Black Hawk, and then he saw something that gave him pause, the fracking site identical gray structures lined up in a neat row along the edges of the slide line, standing like a telltale row of arrows, pointing guilty fingers right at him. The landslide couldn't have been more damning. The land had fallen away neatly along the line of the frack bores, exposing them well into the underground layer of the Bruce, like metal pins shining brightly in sharp relief from the brown surface. The narrow buildings that housed the drill mechanisms formed a row of sentries along the slide line, brown waves frothing at their feet. Cochrane squinted his eyes to get a closer look and realized he could not only see the bore shafts of some of them, but also the chamber that housed the underground robotic pumping mechanism exposed where the ground had disappeared. He drew in a chest full of air and let it out through teeth clenched tightly closed. He wondered if that meant that gas was leaking out into the air and decided that he didn't want to stick around and find out. He slipped a finger inside his girdle and scratched at an itch on his waddle. Then he cleared his throat. Time to go, he said to the pilot. Take us to my landing strip. The helicopter's nose dipped forwards as the pilot lifted up and went. From the Robinson 44 helicopter, Jamie Sinclair sat in disbelief, watching the Black Hawk hover above the slide line before turning suddenly and heading off into the distance. Jamie saw the sunlight flash off the golden upthrust fist flag insignia as it headed off at speed and disappeared over the horizon. Fucking Pricks, Jamie thought. She was shaking with rage because she knew who was inside of that machine. Members of the cabal, elitist kingpins, wealthy men in suits who pulled the strings and ran the workings of the world. Men who had done the awful thing that was unspooling down below because who but they would do a thing like hovering over a scene of such total destruction that they themselves had caused and then nonchalantly disappear in their custom helicopter as though the scene below was no concern. The chopper with the gold insignia had been flagged and they had been the ones to do this damage. The pilot brought them lower. His voice was flat as he spoke through the headset. Do you still want me to follow them? Do we have any rescue gear? Jamie's voice was faltering. Is there anything that we can do to help these people? At that moment, they were hovering above the churning wash of debris and human bodies strewn across the water surface. Tears of shock fell freely down Jamie's cheeks. She had never seen anything so devastating. So much death, such suffering. She just didn't know where to look. I'm afraid not, the pilot said. This machine is not equipped for something like that. I wish we were. Lowering her head, Jamie put her face in her hands and wept. Beside her, Morty took over. He directed the pilot to stay above the scene and then in a steady patter, falling back on his long years of experience filming from helicopters, he delivered the instructions necessary to capture the footage. As terrible as the scene was, the story needed to be told. And so he shunted his feelings aside and captured the images that would tell it. The horror was unimaginable. Hundreds of people floated in the water, if you could even call it water anymore. It was more like mud soup, scattered with debris and bodies, a far cry from the glistening blue explants that Norma Olafson had been admiring just that morning. In the water some were living, some were dead. Others only maimed, waving ever more weakly towards rescue. The entire right-hand side of the peninsula was gone. It had sheared off on the Georgian Bay side, an entire section of the coastline. Where it had been, a stark new cliff face jutted up from the water, marked by glistening mica that glinted in the sunlight above the new high water line. pristine and beautiful and terrible all at once for the first time. The idea that the land of southwestern Ontario might really be in danger of sinking into the water began to feel like a reality and the sense of shock and outrage that she felt was breaking her. Jamie watched, numb, as Morty zoomed in on the roof of a still intact barn that tilted crazily, floating and eddying in the water. From the helicopter, they could see the slide line stretching north into the distance. It looked like the peninsula had been split in half, almost perfectly down the center line of the roadway below, creating a new vertical wall from which everything on the eastern side had dropped away. The cliff it had created flanked the water's edge in a a tall brown column, and when Jamie thought of all that weight of earth and roads and homes and trees and and people that had slipped off, sliding down into the lake. It made her stomach turn. Jamie wiped the dampness from her face, then let her eye travel up the length of the slide line. There was something niggling at her, a pattern that wanted to emerge. She asked the pilot to ferry them a little further along the slide. Suddenly she realized what she was looking at. Several buildings dotted the slide line identical structures of corrugated metal. They were situated at regular intervals, a few kilometers apart. The slide had fallen away from their feet. She thought back to the slideshow. She'd been at the Fallon plant when she had seen it, watching the slides go by with what she now realized had been numb indifference at that time. She was so used to seeing bullshit spin and drama on the news that part of her had dismissed the slideshow out of hand. That had been then, but this was now. Just a few short hours later, and the events that had transpired had made her realize that this time the gong show fear-mongering on the news had been accurate. Probably why they wanted it kept suppressed, she thought bitterly, but the CBC was running it and it looked like this was one of those rare instances where the doom and gloom on the news was going to turn out to be true. She looked down at the landmass known as the Bruce Peninsula. From up here, she could see that the rest of it didn't really look too stable either. It looked like it really was in danger of sliding down into the lake. The line of fissures stretching off to the west seemed to confirm that, and how half of it had already done that. The bodies were already in the water. She frowned at what she was looking at, at the pattern that wanted to emerge. There had been little red arrows on the map, she remembered, ones that indicated frac sites, and there had been plenty of them in this area. Could the structure she was looking at be them? She chewed the idea over, but a sick certainty was starting to creep into her. She asked the pilot to take them over what was left of Highway 6, If you knew nothing about the buildings, really, they wouldn't have stood out, she mused. From the surface, they just looked like utilitarian-looking structures, blending in amongst the grain bins and barns and pump houses of the rural countryside, not attracting undue attention. But when you saw them from above and from a distance and you saw the scrape of earth that fell away from them, she shielded her eyes with her hand and looked closer. There was a silver tube descending down the rock face under the building nearest her, disappearing into the waves. Could that be the drill bore? It would make sense, she realized, for the rock to split where it had been perforated. She played a hunch. Seems like it's my day for doing that, she thought. Zoom in on that, she said, pointing to the nearest silver bore, to Morty. She had the pilot fly up to the cliff as close as he could, and then gave him instructions to hover. From here, they could see the fracking mechanism up close. She got set up to do a voiceover. We're live at the scene of a massive landslide that has washed away a section of the Georgian Bay shoreline on the Bruce Peninsula north of Wyerton. During the last quake, the land appears to have given way along a series of pipes that descend vertically down into the ground from up on the surface level. I'm no geologist, but I can't help wondering if these could be the fracking bore shafts described in the slideshow that's been playing at the hashtag get, up, get off the bruce all afternoon. The pilot hovered them in front of the cliff face to get footage of the bore shaft. Then he lifted up a little higher to take in the metal building above ground. He flew a slow loop of the structure so that Morty could capture it from all sides. Suddenly a man came out of the adjacent farmhouse and Jamie saw with some surprise that he had a shotgun in his hands. He aimed the shotgun at the helicopter, then looked back out into the open front door of the farmhouse, waving someone out. An elderly woman emerged, most likely his wife. She had a suitcase with her and Jamie saw that nearby the trunk of a waiting vehicle stood open. Keeping the gun trained on the helicopter, the man motioned his wife toward the car. The woman put the suitcase in the trunk, then made her way into the passenger seat, clutching the gray flaps of her cardigan closed against the downwash from the helicopter's rotor blades. When she was in, the man lowered his weapon, sprinting to the car. He slammed the trunk and bolted for the driver's seat, peeling out of the laneway and kicking up a rooster tail of gravel. Jamie looked at Morty, did you get all that? He nodded. Yep. Unreal. Like rats fleeing a sinking ship, she thought. She asked the pilot to go back to the area just north of Wireton, where the traffic backlog had been washed into the bay and the cars and people were still floundering. All right. I'm going to leave it there for today because I have to go to work. But uh, I just want to say... Uh, Let's keep it positive. Keep focusing on the joy. Keep focusing on hugging each other again. Focus on what unites us, not on what divides us. This is an incredible time in Canadian history. Wherever you are, have kindness, have respect, have unity, have compassion. Stay free.